Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Chris German, who is a specialist in influencer marketing. Chris, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So thank you, Marcus. I started in, in the tech career exactly not knowing where it was going to take me. And sure enough, I've gone half a dozen different places. And it's been product marketing, it's been customer success, it's been digital marketing. And I think where I ended up was really focusing, I worked at Gartner for over 19 years. And Gartner is a big tech analyst firm and has huge influence on IT spend. And I came out of that with several skills about how to look at the research that's influencing the market. And then I've been able to kind of cherry pick other experiences in my career to join with that understanding of how influencers work in the analyst community. And then I broaden that concept to apply to general influencer marketing in the tech industry. So that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of how I got to the uh, influencer marketing part. Excellent. So what is influencer marketing? I like to call it enterprise influencer marketing. Right now, the prevailing definition of influencer marketing has to do with social media. If there is somebody in the social media stream of data that your company is getting, whether it's a small SaaS company or a large uh, retail company that, that sees all this stream of social media, there are certain people that post on with about your product or post about an industry that have thousands and thousands of followers, tens of thousands of followers. And so when they post on a particular topic, their posts are picked up by the various uh, sensors and logical sensors and, and social media tools, marketing tools, and they're seen as an influencer in social media. You put that, a digital marketing campaign to influence the posting and their podcasts and other digital type transmissions over the internet. Uh, The problem with that is that sometimes there's there's counterfeit influencers. There's a lot of digital marketing gamesmanship that happens with certain types of uh, influencers so so they can be seen as an influencer, have so many likes and so many posts and et cetera. And you're never really 100% sure exactly who the good influencers are. And it's really almost a fool's errand look at exactly what's happening on the internet with all the different schemes and and protocols and algorithms for posting. So that's the prevailing attitude of of, um, influencer marketing. What I like to look at is enterprise influencer market where the stakes are higher. If you, most of my career, like I said, I spent at Gartner and in that market where Gartner's selling research about the market, they have people not just people that post or not just social media accounts, but actual people that know the market and receive a lot of input from customers all day long, thousands of analysts. And then there's half a dozen very large analyst firms in the tech industry, at least, just in the enterprise side of IT. Now, if you look at all the enterprise, excuse me, all the um, vertical industry markets, communications or FinServe or, or, or uh plumbing or whatever it is, there are specific firms that just follow that industry. And they are very significant influencers because they're people that have opinions, they write opinions, or they do podcasts. And they're on everybody's favorite list in terms of getting quotes for articles and getting opinions on what should I do with market strategy. So that's kind of the basis where I started. So after the nine years at Gartner, I really gained a perspective on customer success, where we had to drive retention of CIO research services. So these are IT executives that were spending $100,000 on a research membership. And there was very specific things we had to do, people-to-people relationship building to drive that. And um, they were, you know, we, they are essentially influencers to renewing the membership for their company. And so as I, um, as I left Gartner, got into a sales and marketing role at Oracle to do sales enablement, I came out of that and, and realized, you know, there's probably a customer success notion or concept that you could layer onto 
enterprise influencers and really drive a relationship with them so they can voice opinions that are favored that are favorable to your your product your service or, or your industry so tell me this as a company should it be marketing that is driving that or should it be individual salespeople in tandem with marketing uh, who are developing those relationships with these key enterprise influencers? Well, it definitely has to be uh, in tandem. I would say it's very difficult to have that dynamic develop in a, in a pure and beneficial way if it's driven only by sales. This has an agenda. Everybody knows that people are trying to drive more business, and that's okay. But when you have marketing that's trying to drive relationships with the influencers, then you have people that are, or people in the organization that are just trying to, to build a relationship, to give them what they need to get to develop or deliver their opinions on in their market, whatever they want. And um, I think you need a specialized role for that because it's not a sales role. It's literally relationship building role so that you can get out of it as much as you put into it. And it's a sincere type of give and take. It's not a real purchased or sponsored. So it, it strikes me that the skills that you're really looking for there are really more about the customer experience type of skill set, where you're able to get inside the mind of the customer and think as the customer, so that when you're speaking to the influencers, then you can have conversations about what really matters to them uh, and their customers or their their audience rather than the classic traditional sales function, which again, I have a problem with because it has a tendency to be very self-centered. And this, by the sounds of things, needs to be one that's really about giving and service. Is that correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. I, I think I would phrase it that way because if I'm... If I have a mentality and I view, let's say, an analyst partner or an analyst at a financial services firm that is, is writing about the financial aspects of my business, if I give them information about my business that isn't readily available anywhere else on the internet, and if I give them access to my executives, if I give them part of a network, our own professional network, so they can become smarter, and they view that as a service. And by and large, because we're involved in people relationships, whenever you get into a really productive, beneficial relationship, you're willing to give that other person, the other end of that relationship, the benefit of the doubt and a lot of positive feedback because of the service you're providing. And above all, analysts and influencers, really, they thrive on being smarter. They want to keep current on certain events and, and certain trends. So all you're doing is, is providing that, that flow of information to the influencer and hopefully getting some reciprocation. You've got the analysts, and I, I understand why you'd want to influence them. Uh, what about other uh, types of influencer that affect the B2B space? I've looked at three big populations of, of influencers in developing an influencer marketing strategy. And one is the analyst, clearly, because they're a third party, supposedly objective third party. But the second is our customers. And our customers and all of us who have any sort of retail experience, we know that we go and buy a product now. We go and uh, onto Amazon. We frequently look at reviews. So we look at the opinions of other consumers or other retailers. And that now is part of our DNA. You talk to any of our Millennial associates, some, some, you and I might have children that are in that area, but the first thing they say is, what are the reviews say? Whether it's a movie, whether it's a music, whether it's a, a product online, anything. So the voice of the customer becomes one of the major influencers in purchasing and in trends and in opinions, perceptions of businesses. And the same thing happens in a B2B world. I think because we bring our biases and our what we use in our retail life to our business, if I want to know more about a, a company, I'm immediately going online. I'm looking for other opinions. And you know, when I was an analyst, Marcus, the, the one question I got more than anything else at any time was, well, what do other users say? 
because they want to put what you're telling them in, in some sort of context of what their needs are. So you can always look for these user references. B2B is no different. It's just developing now. And as companies use the peer review platforms in a B2B space that they're developing, such as G2, Chicago Street, IT section is one. G Gartner has peer insights they developed from scratch uh, while G2 was developing. And then they made over $300 million worth of other print and referral type businesses because they knew that might be a disruptor in their third party type analyst model. So I think the voice of the customer through these objective reviews, so to speak, that happen on these peer review platforms will be a game changer for the B2B space and ultimately disrupt to a degree the analysts and the journalist space. So that's the second one. The third one are partners and ecosystem players. And I think you can lump a lot of things into there. If you're in a B2B space that has a lot of consultants or a lot of agencies and partners that, that brings parties together and, and works a project or does an implementation over two or three years, yes, they're getting paid to do that, but they're also looking at all the different technologies and players in the market that will make them more profitable. And so they're recommending and they're doing a lot of work as an objective third party. So the executives or the architects or the main players that are choosing the winners and losers from a channel space, they're heavy influencers. And um, this, isn't, this is more of a natural thing that's developed because, but, but we've only looked at it as a channel, not necessarily influencer space. So those are the three main things from a B2B aspect that I would look at. So to summarize, we have the key influencers like uh, the analysts. Uh, we have customers and the customer's voice and also partners. And I have to agree, uh, the other area that I would look at um, are, uh, within an organization is procurement. Uh, because what's really interesting about uh, procurement is they see all these flashpoints of dissatisfaction occurring within the organization. And they start to see trends in terms of patterns of these symptoms. And so if you use all four of those channels for your research as a seller, not necessarily as a buyer, but as a seller, to get your insight into the competitive landscape, the type of issues that are going on in your target accounts, in terms of what customers are saying they like, and look at the bad reviews in particular. I think people have a tendency to just look quite generally. But experience has taught me, look at the ex polar extremes. Look at the really good reviews and look at the really bad reviews. Because the really bad reviews will tell you where there are gaps in your competitors or your own proposition. And look at shifts in behavior that customers are exhibiting that have happened suddenly. What have they started to do or stopped doing suddenly? And definitely talk to your partners because your partners are probably speaking to dozens and dozens of like customers, like your ideal customer. So they're starting to see patterns of behavior. They're seeing similar questions cropping up. And they're also getting familiar with the different technologies that are available out there. And they're coming up against your competition probably more frequently than you are because they're you know, day to day, they're inside those customers. And um, they're listening to the customers saying, well, ABC company has just made an approach and they have to be familiar with that. So as part of the package of influencer marketing, I think what we also need to do as sellers is really support our partners uh, to make sure they are equipped uh, to understand the marketplace. And don't be afraid to have conversations about the competition's product. If you have a subscription to an analyst report, then by all means, if it's within the terms of service, of course, share what you know with your partners because you know, you're working together to try and help the partner succeed. If you help your partner succeed, then they will take you everywhere you need to go. Everybody loves to be smarter, to your point, right? Everybody Absolutely. wants to be more aware. So after, that's, that's the game, is sharing your insight and knowledge. But I, I do need to push back on one aspect of your procurement. So 
I don't think that's one of our main pillars of influencer marketing. I think that that's an essential step in the sales process because the procurement folks in one company have an impact on one company. Unless they're on some board or some panel at a conference where there's a thousand people in the room and you have somebody being interviewed as a, as a luminary. So my, my point wasn't that um, that's about influencing, that's about research. Make sure that you're doing your research and uh, include in that procurement because they will uh, get to see what's going on across the organization, like the partners should as well. But I take your point that they are not influencers outside of that one organization or that group. My next question is this. If we are looking at influencers, then we want to make sure they're relevant. We want to make sure that they have reach. And we want to make sure that they resonate with the same audience that you're trying to target. So tell me this. How do you measure their level of engagement, their level of trust with that audience? Well, I think it's uh, so different for each of the different pillars. If you, if you take the, the basic example of, of an analyst, they have reports that end up being the Bible for product selection. So that is a very relevant uh, part of the process. It resonates um, and uh, very, very critical. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that are impacted by those rating reports. So that in itself is justification for, for that whole pillar of influencer marketing. If you go to, and even if they aren't writing rating reports on your market, they're writing some sort of report or opinion. If you go to the customers, because we've been programmed to look at customers as really knowing what's happening on the ground, customers, what you would do is look at the customer review platforms, one, but enterprise information is just nascent on those platforms as much. So there are several customers that are on a lot of conference panels, on advisory boards, they speak at a lot of podcasts. And there are CIOs that have chosen to be voices for a particular industry or market. And if you're not selling to that person in their enterprise, to contacting them and giving them influence, or excuse me, giving them information that ends up being influenced on your product could have a far-reaching impact because of they're on the circuit, basically. Um, as far as agencies, um, I, I think you look at the most credible partners or integrators in that space, the ones that have a practice in your area. So for example, e-commerce, there's, you know, McKinsey has a probably a management practice on e-commerce or retailing. So if you're in the retailing business or an e-commerce platform, McKinsey and, and Bain perhaps, Deloitte, Accenture, all those high-end integrators have a thought leadership influence and they also have a technical implementation Influence well, Bain might not so much, and and uh, McKinsey, but Accenture and Deloitte do. And then, if you have uh, something that is involved in IT infrastructure, then you would go to a lot of the outsourcing and, and managed services vendors, HCL, Wipro, and and those type of, of vendors. I think you can see what's relevant by the impact and the breadth of coverage that each of the pillars has on their particular market. Okay, so tell me this, a massive fortune, it's not a small fortune, it's a massive fortune, is spent on invasive, interruptive broadcast marketing. Has that stuff really had its day? I think it's overblown. It's tremendously overblown. And it's just, it's because you can do it. And just because you can do it, just because you can have every possible marketing tool to get into every possible IP address that's on the internet, and try to deduct or deduce exactly how many buying signals you can see. Just because you can do that doesn't make sure, make it an absolutely effective way to drive sales. I spent time, as I mentioned, at a very large software company, and they spend tens of millions of dollars in driving leads um, through content marketing. and it was a very, very, very small percentage that they could act on. And the whole game was just driving this massive volume. And you never, it was, the, the holy grail is, is matching 
the leads that you drove through a very blurry internet marketing campaign and linking that to an actual lead that went into a sales cycle that went into a sale. That was very difficult all the time. So um, with influencers, I think it's real easy to get references and link talking to a person to a sales cycle and a deal. So to me, the the power of the investment is much, uh, much higher in the influencer marketing than in some digital campaigns. Now, I don't want to say all, but I think some digital campaigns are just, the expectations are way too high. Well, certainly my experience, and I've been doing quite a lot of research on this in the last year, and you know, c- campaigns might get uh, leads into the top of the funnel, but I, I think what I'm seeing is a trend uh, towards driving efficiency rather than effectiveness. I'm seeing the dehumanization of the marketing and sales conversation. And the net result of that, I think, is that it distances us from our customer. And I remember reading 20 years ago, Dan Kennedy uh, writing, saying that um, the price uh, of uh, free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And you only have to look at how frustrated we feel when our inboxes are clogged with drivel that's selfish, self-serving, product-orientated, and it isn't relevant. And if you listen to people like Mark Schaefer and Colin Shaw, Rod Jefferson, uh, Lisa Palmer, they're all passionate advocates of the antithesis of that noise and that fog of marketing. So why is it that organizations are so slow to change? I think it's a hesitance to truly understand the art of influence and perhaps because customer success and customer experience is so new as a concept, we're focused on that instead of taking that paradigm and that skill set into an influencer basis where I can take people that I know have impact, that I that every day are talking to my customers. If I can provide a methodology that builds a relationship and engages over time along certain metrics with that person, I could probably show more impact on that than, like you said, sending out in, uh, millions of, of emails or analyzing every hit on a, on a website. There's the flip side of this coin as well. I, I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And it's, it's a fascinating documentary where uh, many of the people who created the crystal meth for the brain on social media are going th- the other way when it comes to the manipulation of an audience using social influence. And I, I'm curious about the question around ethics uh, around influencer marketing, because certainly there have been some cases where influencers that's in the B2C space have done little or no research. And you know they, they were spoofed into promoting cyanide-laden drinks and other stuff like that. And just simply because of the power of their network, there are people who may be influenced to buy. But you know, the, what, what are the ethics that we should be building into um, who we recruit as our uh, influencers and how we relate to them? Um. So my measuring stick is how they make money. For example, there are some analyst firms that are particular to some industries, uh, either the sourcing industry or electronics, or and and I'm not impugning those industries. I'm just saying there are some boutique analyst firms that 90 and 95% of their revenues are from vendors in that space. They're not necessarily having formal relationships with customers to give their information to customers. It's basically an outsourced marketing resource for their industry. So the vendors use them as kind of a pseudo objective third party to influence buyers. And buyers in the end still have to go through the same process they did before. And perhaps that's why a lot of these industries aren't getting out of this. Yeah. So I think the mentality is that you have an industry with a boutique firm that 90, 95% of its revenues that are only based on the money they get from the vendors to write certain papers about the industry, certain technologies, 
individual vendors about their latest products. And so basically you have marketing rags, you have an outsourced marketing platform. And I think those are the vendors that it's a perfectly legitimate business model because vendors want to get some other voice outside of their own. Um, however, it doesn't do anything to really promote the objective exchange of information of customers, for example, in a certain industry. It's just purely a, a business model to earn money off the vendors. Like I said, I think that is where the ethical dilemma comes in for the influencer market is when you look at analysts, how much are they taking from the vendors and how much are they money that is coming from users that are trying to consume their intelligence and their research. And I think the more revenue that comes from the users where they're having a dialogue with their users and getting more of a, a reality check on whether the technologies work or don't work or what's working, what's not working, that's where you have a more of a healthy dynamic. So that's how I would, I would characterize that. I'm seeing a trend in, it's only fledgling at the moment, but I'm seeing a trend in certain industries where they are focusing more on the unfiltered, unbiased, spontaneous conversations that are happening between call centers and customers across the employee network. And the technology is out there now for AI to analyze these calls and to identify what these trends are. And I think the critical thing with that is to make sure that you remove the bias because it's very easy if um, you look at the way you know, hotels and other organizations do customer satisfaction surveys, that it's very easy to be have answers that are biased by the questions that you ask. And uh, I'm curious what you would advise organizations to do to encourage more of that spontaneous conversation and really pay attention to that. No question. And that um, I think that happens through a lot of the review type platforms. Even if you have your own type comment section and dialogue with, with customers, almost in a focus group type of inquisition. And that can happen spontaneously, like you said, in a chat channel where you're actually recovering intelligence, market intelligence from your customer and understanding what they like and don't like besides just trying to sell them something. So, and that's, Marcus, that's how these relationships are built. If I had a call center person that was asking me my opinion and giving me tips on how I could perhaps save a little bit more money in the industry, that would go a lot longer way for me to be a loyal customer than trying to sell me something. So I agree. I think, I think those customer channels and the large companies that have scale in servicing those customer channels can have a huge, huge advantage in, in driving influence with their customers when they have that more of a, a rich, objective dialogue. Which then raises the obvious questions. One, why is it marketing spends so little time talking to actual customers? And two, why is listening not the primary skill that's being taught? So the first issue, I think, is, is easy. There's a lot of, now just talking about enterprise software vendors for a second, sales cycles are usually longer. Customers are usually engaged. Some are really pleased. Some aren't. And until you achieve a scale of a number of enterprise customers where you can just call a customer and, and, and get an opinion, it's very difficult to want to reach out to the same customer all the time. That's an age-old problem of enterprise software vendors or even hardware vendors is that you have one or two customers that look like your, your you know, model profile of a customer and you want them to talk out loud all the time at conferences, talk to another customer, talk to an analyst. You just go to the well too much on that one customer. So it's a problem. It's a real, uh, it's a real uh, difficulty to get to a balance where you're having the dialogue because you don't have a, you don't have the scale you don't have as many of those enterprise customers i think that there is a, a workaround which is to interview that customer and really get the story from their perspective making them the hero i think one of the things that i find nauseating is the number of case studies that are out there 
that try to make the vendor the hero. And it, you should be looking to develop those customer hero stories that make your customer the hero and uh, understand why they bought, what the problems were that they brought to the table originally when they spoke to the vendor, how they were trying to tackle those problems beforehand, and what worked and what didn't work, and what triggered the search for another solution, how that client came on the vendor's radar, and how they, the customer felt that you as a vendor would be able to help them. But most of this stuff that's being produced by marketing is the absolute opposite of that. And they, they don't think about the customer journey except where uh, the vendor touches them. If you're going to McDonald's, the customer journey starts when one of your kids screams that they're hungry. Then you bundle them all into the car. Then you have the fight on the way over. And are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then you have the screaming of the order. And then you have to yell it through the squawk box and get it wrong. And then you have to worry about whether it's wrong by the time you pay. And then when you get to the end, you're so worn out, you just pick the bag up and you take it home and something's not in there and tears are all around. Now you've got to get rid of the stuff and you've got to cope with the indigestion. That's the real customer journey. It's not the point where they turn up to the squawk box and pay. I think so much marketing is incredibly selfish. And without having this direct contact with customers, uh, you're missing out on a huge amount of the value that you can bring. So what do you think needs to change? Well, first of all, let me just comment on your thoughts there. I completely agree because when you engage with that customer and highlight their successes and their talents and their abilities, you're creating this emotion of, I want to engage with this person, and then they want to engage with you. That's the essence of influencer marketing. So in as much as we can do that digitally, I'm all for it. But like you said, so much digital marketing is how good I am as a vendor, how I beat my competitor. Exactly, like you said. So the way we get there is to use this customer success, customer experience, customer journey paradigm, lay that on top of the key influencer um, audiences we want, we want to impact and create this authentic, emotional uh, relationship. And that's when brands are going to start realizing a lot of benefit from that. Well, you, you've touched on a number of things there. Authentic, um, emotional relationship. And um, you, you also talk about the brand. But the brand is defined by your customers and what they think, not what we want them to. And so if we're not listening to them, how on earth can we possibly understand what our brand even stands for? Agreed. I think and truly listening to them in an authentic relationship. And that's, that's what um, I try to do when I speak with analysts now or, or customers is in, in when people are telling you their feelings and thoughts. And uh, there's, a, you know, there's a psychological aspect to it, but they and, and you're actively listening they want to come back to you <laughs> and they want to invest in you. So it's, it's, it's very much a uh, human behavioral aspect of, uh, of that marketing. I think there's another aspect to this as well, which comes from the psychological driver of reciprocity. If you ask someone for help um, then, um, and you ask for a small piece of help to begin with, they're very likely to give you more. And yeah. if you keep going back to these people for opinions without overburdening them. Um, but I, I think it's also really important that you give them feedback as to what you've done with that advice or that insight. And th this, again, is where I see so many organizations fall down because they gather this information. They do the customer surveys. They do employee engagement surveys. But they don't communicate the fact that, first of all, they've heard and then what action they have taken as a direct result of that input. So what, what would you advise organizations to do to make sure um, that the frequency and the relevance of those conversations actually bears fruit? I've seen it um, several ways. One is to have, which I don't like this approach because I think it, it, it segments and silos the activity of talking to customers, but some organizations have a customer connection office or a, or a customer person. And I think the, the ethos and the culture has to be with everybody in the company. Everybody has to have 
like you said, treat the customers as if they're on a journey and we're revering their journey and honoring their journey, so to speak. And if everybody in the company has that ethos, then the salesperson is talking to them that way. Marketing will reach out that way. The executives are interviewing and reaching out that way. So it's it's not, you can't do this with a siloed activity. It has to be a, a cultural behavior of treating customers so that they want to give you feedback and, and they want to you know, be loyal to, to your company and your product. Well, that, that requires a lot of work and it also requires a lot of courage because if you're going to integrate your organization and have them working as one rather than uh, in their individual silos, then you've got to be ready to manage internal constructive conflict. You have to align what you're doing with the customer and what they're trying to achieve uh, instead of allowing uh, fiefdoms to evolve and um, silos and blame and avoidance and all of this kind of stuff. Um, So what kind of leader is actually brave enough to do that? You know, we've seen the evolution of a role in a lot of enterprise companies now called the chief customer officer. And these are sometimes even board positions. They're generally very senior positions, but it's it's more than just a VP of customer success where you're driving retention. These are people that have this remit in their organization to build the culture and the awareness of how the customer experience is going to drive the success of their product or their brand. I think that's one one healthy part of the market is somebody who can kind of spread that principle around around the company. Uh, But you still have commission-based salespeople that need the sale now. You still have a layer of customer success that needs the retention, that needs the renewal now on the product. But um, clearly there's some brands in the past that have done this in the retail world and have been role models of how to do this. Apple's was obviously one. There's clearly the pathway to do that for every company. But you're right, it's it's a lot of work, but I've seen it from top down be most successful when there's somebody that can drive that customer awareness uh, across all, uh, all aspects of the company. I've noticed something else happening as well, and it generally happens only in small pockets. So I, I was speaking to Patty Hatter over at Palo Alto Networks a couple of weeks back, and she introduced outcome-based pricing to their professional services business. And in Q4, they grew 98% their revenues by doing that. And that was by listening to what customers were really telling them between the lines, because customers don't care about time and materials. They want the outcome. And I think initiatives like that can only be driven where you have a leader who is willing to take a risk and is willing to go to the mat with other leaders within the organization. And it requires a lot of bravery and a a lot of nerve to do that because I know that she faced a lot of resistance from other executives within the organization asking her if she'd gone slightly mad. But she stuck to her guns, and you know, within a quarter, sales went up 98% by getting away from being transactional, by really focusing on listening to what the customer was telling her. And the net result of that is that they took business away from competitors, they grew their market share, they increased the average order value, all within the space of 90 days of implementing it. Now, the examples are out there, but again, I, I think part of the problem here is the way so many organizations are set up to operate on the quarter-by-quarter basis and targets being set quarter-by-quarter and salespeople worrying about getting the deal in for this quarter. So um, the tendency is to push deals over the line prematurely or to educate customers to wait until the end of the sales period. So again, in terms of a, a psychological shift, what would you advise companies' uh, leadership in the tech space to do when they're looking at compensation, when they're looking at how they're speaking to the analysts in the market 
not technical analysts, but financial analysts? Well, first of all, I love that example from Palo Alto Networks because I saw that myself. One of my functions at Gartner before I left Gartner was was as a relationship executive with global chief information officers. And I was sitting in a room with 30 of them at one point. And these are all huge brands that you would recognize. And one of the large outsourcing vendors came in and introduced outcome-based pricing. And they knew that there was a lot of complications and a lot of very complex issues with that. However, they all, almost all, most of them were very willing to pay more, pay a premium for that type of service. Because number one, they know you have to stay in business. So they're willing to pay what they should pay. But the fact, like you said, that somebody's willing to put their their reputation on the line to get you the outcome you need is an amazing impact on the bottom line, like you said, and, and um, achieving market share. So I think the main thing that executives have to keep in mind is and something that I've seen a company I'm working with right now, Spryker Systems out of Germany, they do it that's called building a minimum viable product. And I know that's been very used a lot recently, but they went one step further. They actually created a Corona viable product where they got one of their customers up and running on their platform in three weeks. Did they make as much money on that? No, because they only sold a certain amount of products, certain amount of services. But they were up in three weeks to enable them to be agile and shift into the Corona type market mindset that we all know a lot of retail brands and a lot of companies struggled with. So they were willing to look at their customers' needs and and they didn't price it as an outcome, but they basically gave the service and the product to get that outcome what they needed. And they have a very loyal customer now who's adding more modules and adding more services. So this is the type of thing, even though if you're not offering outcome-based pricing, just add you know, the Corona viable product or the minimum viable product, and you'll have a customer for life that's going to end up spending a lot more money. I think what you're also describing there is um, something called entrepreneurship, which is acting like an entrepreneur within the organization and being willing to take risk. But so many organizations, as they grow, stifle risk-taking. And uh, there's this sort of CYA mentality, cover your ass, and that emphasis on coloring within the lines to play it safe. But I I think in this economy, we're going into the worst recession ever recorded. If we think about the Great Recession in 2010, this one is significantly worse and will have its teeth and claws in us for a lot longer. And the unsafe bet is to play it safe. And this is where strategy comes in as well, I think, because many organizations have a path that they're set to follow. Because of the way they're set up and because of their culture, they struggle to adapt. And I think one thing that this conversation has really highlighted is the critical importance of adapting to the current environment. And that's going to come from listening to your customers, listening to the key influencers in the market, and really paying attention as much to what's not being said as to what is being said. So what are the kind of questions people should be asking, but they're not when it comes to enterprise influencer marketing? Well, taking each pillar, I guess, one by one, the question that I always ask the analysts that I talk to is, what are you hearing? What are the top one or two questions that you're getting all the time? So that that gives me the, the intelligence that they're hearing from customers separate from my bias if I'm working with a vendor, right? So I get that honest feedback. When you're um, talking with with partners, getting really clear and accurate feedback, you know, be honest with me, which tools are easier to implement or which companies are easier to work with? So you're asking honest, authentic questions and they wanna be objective and, and and give you the best information too so they can have a good relationship. So, And then asking customers, we, we talked about that at length. If you're having a dialogue with the customers instead of just sending them marketing information and, and trying to sell them something, then you're, you're going to get that, that information. But you have to, have, like you said, you have to have structures to receive the information to process it and not just make it a token effort. 
but truly incorporated? I think those are the kind of questions that, that I would ask each of those influencer channels. Okay. So, Chris, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? As I dig deeper into the influencer marketing space, I'd like to look at three main ways that influencers get value from me and that I'm trying to provide them so that they can provide value to you know, the company I'm working with. And that is, number one, they have personal value. They have something they're looking for that's called personal value. And that is, they either want to write a book, they want to get the next big job, they want to be the president of a company, whatever that, or they want to end up with a you know, beach house in Barbados or whatever. What can I do that will help them with that vision? And if I'm aligned with their vision or what they want on a personal nature, I've got a friend for life, number one. Now, sometimes that's difficult to do. But secondarily, and this is where you get into the tactics of how you get that personal value, is they're working on a certain project right now. Something's big in their life. Either they're going through an acquisition, uh, or that's when you talk to another company, or they're analyzing an acquisition. They are trying to help another company build a product, or they're trying to get a, a research report out the door. There's some project that they're working on that they need help with. And the last type of value is a company value and strategic value. In other words, they want to be seen as a contributor to growing revenue, decreasing costs, being more productive, all those business-wide KPIs that some people get bonused on. So if I'm aligned on some tactical way on each of those three value areas, then I'm going to have an influencer that's going to return value to, to the company. So I'm currently involved in what are the increasingly more detailed ways that I can provide each of those value points to the influencers that I work with. So this really comes down to attention. And my friend Ron Voperice always uh, described attention as a product itself. Attention is a currency. You pay attention. And if you don't invest that attention to hear what's actually being said, then that can get you into deep trouble because you can miss really something really important. And so pay good attention. Listen and listen between the lines. Listen to what's being said as well as to what's not being said. And really um, understand the context in which the people that are influencing on our behalf are operating in. So few people really pay good attention because most people listen for a gap so that they can fill it with the sound of their own voice. Gong's research, they studied 10 million phone calls. The average length of time that a seller could handle the silence before they had to fill it with the sound of their own voice. And that was 0.7 of a second. So I think one of the most important skills that we can all learn is to learn to just stop when someone else has finished speaking and wait and make sure we listen to the end of their sentence. But very often, if you just give them four or five seconds, they'll carry on talking and they will tell you exactly what it is that they need. Tell me this, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Chris, age 23, and this isn't about regret, but if you could whisper something in his ear, what would you suggest to him? You know, Marcus, my biggest thing that um, I wish I had heard more of when I was that age was, and I did hear it some, but I didn't really get it. I didn't get grabbed by the ear and say, no, you have to do this. And that is keep learning, keep mm. investing in your knowledge. I really felt like once I got to a certain level of understanding of the PC and the networking industry, client server, all that stuff back 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that I had enough knowledge to take me through my career, which is absurd now when you think about it. So I really wish I had every stage, every year of my career, almost breaking it down to every day, what am I learning more of that I can use later to either make money, support my family, whatever your goals are. And um, so it's come in fits and starts. In my career, I've realized, okay, I need to go back into industry and get more familiar with cloud applications, enterprise cloud applications. So I went and did a job doing that where if I had been doing that all along, especially when I was a gardener, I mean, with all those things under my fingertips, uh, all the research there. So, um, so there was a lot of learning, but I think I could have done that a lot better 
and been more disciplined about continuing that knowledge curve. Interesting. I mean, I lived in Amsterdam for a, a year and I only got to see stuff in Amsterdam after I left. And I think people in London and any great city experience the same thing. You don't appreciate what you've got until you've lost it. And certainly one of the most useful lessons I learned was calendar blocking. And it's to block time out specifically for study and make sure that's one of the first things you put in. So the first thing you put in is all of your personal commitments. So family time, putting the kids to bed, date night, going to the doctor, going to the gym, uh, all that kind of stuff. Then 15 minutes of admin a day. So you get it out of the way and you don't have three days at the end of the month swearing at Bill Gates because you hate Excel. And then <laughs> study. And study comes next. And then everything else is built upon that. And uh, you're absolutely right. I was fortunate in that I did pick up that habit in my early 20s. And there hasn't been a day gone by in the last 35 years where... for Shit, that's about 40 years where I haven't put in an hour to three, maybe even sometimes six hours of study. That's served me incredibly well because having a general background, and that's the other thing I would suggest, is study widely. Don't just study in your field of specialization, study broadly because it gives you context and it gives you perspective in the same way that diversity brings perspective and different points of view working across multiple industries, studying uh, history, philosophy, behavioral economics, psychology, sales, marketing, customer success, everything, allows you to see things across the entire organization and through a different set of eyes. That's incredibly powerful. Okay, how can people get hold of you? Right now, I'm working with a company called Spriker. I mentioned that in the podcast. I'm very happy to take email messages at chris.german, that's C-H-R-I-S dot G-E-R-M-A-N-N at spryker.com, S-P-R-Y-K-E-R.com. And happy to have a dialogue and, and um, hopefully help you out. Excellent. Chris German, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, and share and do subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.